Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to... Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah Nixon, Public Programmer here at the museum. We'd like to start off by acknowledging that we are recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre, which we acknowledge is part of the traditional territory of the Neutrals, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe peoples, and their allies, and is adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. In today's podcast episode, we're talking about crime, gender, and class in 19th century St. Catharines, and the novel Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood. I'm so excited to have Dr. Linda Mahood, Professor of History at the University of Guelph, to join me a little later on in the podcast to bring her insights. There's no need to arrest you in suspense, so let's get to it. (laughs) It's terrible, (laughs) but really good. Your favorite book club, Books and Brews, with brew partner Lock Street Brewing Company, is returning to the St. Catharines Museum this month. This time, we are reading Margaret Atwood's acclaimed novel, Alias Grace. Here's the synopsis. Grace Marks was a historical figure who, in the 1840s, was imprisoned for allegedly aiding in the murder of Thomas Kinnear, her wealthy employer, and Nancy Montgomery, his mistress and housekeeper. Marx was eventually pardoned and released 28 years later after numerous petitions organized by groups claiming her innocence and wrongful conviction. However, however, throughout this historical record, Marx has remained an enigma. There continues to be much debate over her guilt and questions of her character. Was Grace Marx an unwitting accomplice? A victim of spiritual possession, or a cunning murderess. Atwood weaves together the true events of Grace Marx's life with a fictionalized story that offers an insightful portrayal of life in mid-19th century Upper Canada, and especially the experiences of women and the divide between classes. To help us contextualize the story of Grace Marx, and to paint a more detailed picture of crime, gender, and the justice system in Victorian-era Upper Canada, I have invited Dr. Linda Mahood to our podcast today to share her expert historical insights. I do want to make a quick note to warn that the following conversation does discuss sexual abuse and sexuality. Listener discretion is advised. Dr. Mahood is a professor of history at the University of Guelph, where she studies the history of punishment and social control in 19th and 20th century Britain and Canada. I actually took two of her history courses during my undergraduate at Guelph, one on the history of the family and the other on popular culture and punishment in the 19th century. This is why, when reading Alias Grace, I knew I had to reach out. And it turns out Dr. Mahood has previously taught this novel in her courses. Thank you so, so much for joining me, Linda, and welcome. I'm hoping you can first help set the stage for Grace Marks and her experiences in the criminal justice system. 
What would life have been like for someone like Grace during this period in Canadian history? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think when we think about about Grace Marks, um, we have to always remember that the character that Margaret Atwood created isn't necessarily who she was. So we have to suspend a little bit about what we already know and just try and think of what life would be like for a 12-year-old in 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 um in, in the early 1840s right in the early 1840s it's pre-confederation so it's upper canada and uh canada is a british uh dominion and so canada is using british law so we keep we kind of have to keep that in mind and we know at that time we know what we do know about grace is that she was a poor working class irish immigrant she's 12 years old and she comes across on the boat she loses her mother at that time and so she's what they early victorians would have called semi-orphan when she arrived and they get to canada and uh and uh they, they get set up she's got what eight brothers and sisters i believe and we learn early on that her father's an alcoholic that he's abusive and it does seem to suggest that he's physically as well as possibly sexually abusive, right? Um, in the 1840s, there was nothing a, a, a young girl, a child could really do about that. Um, she wouldn't necessarily, without a mother in the house, have had, had anybody, any other supervision, right? She's the oldest child, I believe, or just about at the oldest Um but we know that you know there's child there's child welfare legislation in place, and they're starting to sort of regulate child labor. Um, but if if the police weren't involved, there really wasn't anything she could do about physical or sexual abuse unless a neighbor or somebody reported that. So her rights aren't really protected by any laws specifically. Um, there might have been some charities starting to form that might have been a little bit interested in sort of policing what was going on in the homes of the poor immigrants, but there really wasn't very much around Toronto at that time. Um there really wasn't much. They probably moved into the area somewhere um, around Huntington Market. That's where a lot of the Irish immigrants built some of their the first uh, the first houses. There was some land being leased around that time. But they're very poor. They have nothing. And pretty quickly, about she's age twelve, her father expects her to work for a living. And we know that that was normal and typical for working class children to be working by the age of twelve. They got a lot of self esteem, a lot of importance, a lot of value. They saw themselves as contributing economically to the family. So in that regard, having lost a mother, uh, being alone in a new country, uh, with, you know, less than ideal circumstances, she was probably a pretty typical, pretty typical kid, you know, her family, immigrant family under stress and duress, father's not really able to kind of hold it together. And so she was probably a sort of a typical girl. Um, in, in, as a 12-year-old, she goes out to work, and we can kind of go back to her working experiences, goes out to work, um, and then uh, within about what, five or six years, she finds herself, um, four years, she finds herself um, uh, convicted of a serious, serious crime. Um, during that time, she's been charged with murder. 
But what's interesting about the 1840s is it's really, really just the very beginning of the medical profession getting interested in um, in sort of the minds of criminals. The, the insanity plea has is just about to be passed in England in 1843, and so when the trial comes, it, there's there's really not much. There's not much available to her in terms of a, a defense plea. It's uh, it's uh, you know, guilty, not guilty, um, and then the the court has discretion. The court can decide sort of what to do and how convicts should be should be sentenced. But for murder, it, the, she, being hanged is the only option for somebody convicted of murder. So. What we're going to find out, you know, kind of later on, because they don't really know what to do with her, they put her into a lunatic asylum. And again, these lunatic asylums are very new. They're becoming a new extension of the criminal justice system, right? So, so it's it, in eighteen forty three is a very interesting year in terms of the history, the intersection of history and biography coming together in a, in this particular case. Because uh, uh, things are just about to change, and she's really living on the cusp of a lot of change. But at that point, she's a 16-year-old girl, and she's a domestic servant, which is an absolutely typical job for a working-class girl in the 1840s. For sure. Okay, so just to add to that then, um, what can Grace's experiences in the criminal justice system that you describe, um, what can that tell us about how women were viewed in society at this time? That's an excellent question because it follows from the typical girl experience to what the reality of girls' lives were really like in the 1840s. And I, what I really like uh what I really like about Atwood's um, treatment of the case is we get to look at Grace's life at sort of the different stages in the life cycle, right? And as a little girl, her responsibility is to look after her little brothers and sisters. That would be a girl's responsibility. Mothers very frequently had uh, had the infants and the gave the elder daughter the infants and the toddlers and the babies to look after while they went on and did the domestic work. And that's that's been Grace's life um, up until the emigration and her mother dying on the boat. Um, when she gets when she gets to uh, to Canada and the family gets set up, there's really no opportunity for any kind of education for her. Her job, as we can tell from her father's expectation, is that she's going to keep house for him, right? And she keeps house for him until the second sister's old enough, and then he's going to put Grace out to work so she can make some wages. And that's sort of the cycle. So Grace goes into domestic service, which is what most girls would have done until they got married. They're working in domestic service, uh, sending some money home to their families if they have some extra, but they're also saving money for their dowries so that they'll be able to to uh, to you know something when they get married. But that's the tri- that's the the standard trajectory. But where it gets dark is that Grace seems to have been a victim of, of sexual abuse and and physical assault almost her entire lifetime. Her father. And then once she moves into her into, um, domestic service and she's sharing the room with Mary Whitney, we get a, a deeper idea about what how really complicated 
domestic servants were in the homes of the elite at this time. Uh, Mary Whitney's a really interesting character because she's a little bit older. She's a lot more savvy, a lot more sophisticated, right? And Grace, I mean, the way Margaret Atwood writes about her, she creates this um, kind of impenetrable, uh, innocent a character who just sort of reacts to everything. We really, really don't get a sense of what how, how Grace really feels about things, but we do have a very clear idea what she sees. And she sees a very typical situation with Mary Whitney. Mary Whitney has been seduced or raped by the son of the household. And again, one of the most, the largest causes of juvenile prostitution during the period was domestic servants who'd been raped or seduced and, uh, and found, became pregnant and were turned out of the house and left on their own. And it was impossible for a young single mom to survive and raise a child alone during this period. And so, again, prostitution was just about the only option available for them. And so we see um, this is this is Mary's... Mary's um, conundrum at the point in in her particular case she has an illegal abortion which again would have been totally reasonable and possible to do she gets terrible infection and she dies again very common uh, at the time and but we what's interesting with mary's character is with that character as atwood sets it up we get a sense of what Victor- early Victorian morality and moral codes were were like at the time, which is a pretty accurate um, depiction. Grace and the domestic servant are expected to have accepted the social ha- class hierarchies of the time, and their their lives are about service. They have to. Um, they're their work creates the leisure for the ladies who they work for. So the ladies they work for are going off and saving the poor and, and uh, give, doing charity work, traveling around the city, and they're um, and and they leave the servants sort of in charge of raising the raising the children and and um, the wealthy children, but also cleaning up the mess and the muck and the dirt that. Um, that the, the elite classes leave behind, and it's moral as well as uh, as well as physical. And Grace see, Grace can see that, and Mary really experiences it. She's she's got what uh, Victorians would say ideas above her station. She has believed she's been duped. She's been conned by the son of the household to think that he might actually marry her, right? And uh, uh, middle-class men at the time really believed that uh, sexual access to working-class women was their right. It was a right and uh, privilege that came with social class. And uh, he's, again, what uh, they would euphemistically call sowing his wild oats, right? And, again, he ruins, is a term that Victorians would have used, he ruins Mary. And uh, Grace sees the hypocrisy of this, according in the book. She sees the mother piecing two and two together and thinking her son's done this. She turns Mary out, and uh, uh, Mary's about to be turned out, and again, Mary ends up dying. And the whole scandal is hushed up, right? The whole scandal is hushed up. Nobody will talk. And again, one thing about Victorians is there would be no talk, right? Mm-hmm. No talk, no gossip, 
no scandal. They wanted to be perceived as a good home and a good family, good people, and good people don't uh, d- don't like mess, right? And so they they shuffle the stones along, right? And they're mm-hmm. happy to see Grace go at the end. But Grace mm-hmm. is feeling Grace is feeling. Um, uh, betrayed by the family who she respected she believes in that sort of victorian uh social class hierarchy and that her 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 responsibility her duty is to be a good worker and a good worker a good servant trustworthy honest she's accepted these sort of christian values right which reflect the victorian hierarchy as well right mm-hmm. that uh, the poor do service for the rich you know, as an extension of, you know, the faith in God or, or however it was thought of at the time. What really struck me most about the trials of Grace Marks and James McDermott was that they caused such a sensation in 19th century Upper Canada. It seems from the references to newspapers in the novel that the press almost gleefully covered the story and sensationalized the murders. Can you speak to why this case would have caused such a stir? One thing that is really interesting is the the publicity around the crime that uh, the, the, the actual appetite that the um, the Canadian respectable public had um, for knowing what was happening during this, in the case and, and the trial is really interesting. Uh, the press really did play up sort of the the um, illicit sexuality or or the sort of a case of scorned and slain lovers and Nancy being this fallen woman, you know, um, and 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 the sort of case of possible revenge. And it there was a genuine fascination that a lot of middle class people had for working class people. A lot of middle class people didn't have any contact. Middle class people didn't have any contact with working people, really. The only contact they had would have been with their servants, right? And again, servants were absolutely central to the household. And so a lot of middle class people thought of themselves as real experts on working class morality and working class behavior. Um, and again, they used their authority over working class girls to, to control and police their behavior. But another thing that's interesting about that is the representations of working class women and girls in the Victorian pornography. A lot of the themes and um, and uh, uh, the, the themes and, and imagery in early um, in, in Victorian pornography was of working class girls. Sort of the maid looking through the keyhole at the maid. Um, a lot of uh, young, a lot of middle class boys, uh, middle bourgeois boys, were inter- introduced to sexuality through their associations with their maids. Right? They would you know play around in the maids' bedrooms and they would look in the maids' drawers and they'd see the maids' underwear and they would you know smell the maids. You know they smelled like armpits. They were dirty. They so they developed a kind of fetish. A lot of them. Um, towards working class women right because they were different they were other they were unlike the uh, perfumed and lace covered women of their own class and so this sort of voyeuristic excitement around working class women's sexuality was something that um that the victorians were just generally quite interested in and fascinated by so a case like this in the 1840s would have been just the sort of thing that would have sort of mobilized people to uh, have an opinion, 
you know, to have an opinion about what, what working people were like. I mean, were they racially degenerate? Were they morally diseased? Were they dirty? You know, should we should we love the poor or should we fear the poor? Mm-hmm. Um, the churches, the religion was telling it, telling Christian believers to love the poor, but in reality, the crime statistics were saying, ah, one must fear the poor. That's really important insight. We can see how Grace's class, working class, and her gender as the weaker sex, how that shaped how society viewed her and kind of the the odds were stacked against her from the beginning because of where she was in society, her position in society. So based on this, I I want to end off by asking what do you think what do you think about grace we never get closure for her was she a cunning murderess was she a victim of circumstance um so i want to know what do you think was grace marks guilty or innocent this is the period before freud right mm-hmm. and so they don't understand any much about the the role of the human unconscious they don't uh they don't know much at all and, and grace doesn't tell them very much because i think grace probably to a certain extent didn't really know what was happening either you know i mean she's it's, the, the, these four years of her life you know have been very overwhelming um but if you think about it we can think of her as sort of just a victim that rolls along, you know, and uh, gets bumped along. And at the end of the day, all she would think of was, well, maybe if, um, maybe at least if James McDermott married her, might have, you know, she. I think, or or we could think that maybe maybe she snapped. Maybe she was just angry. Maybe all of the rage of being a victim of domestic violence, sexual abuse, witnessing the sexual abuse um, of, of her closest friend, uh, being under the domineering hand, the cruel hand of, of Nancy. Uh, uh, maybe she just snapped and thought enough's enough. But I, 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 I thought about it. I thought about it a lot. And I, I don't know. I, it, it's surprising to me that... Um, that she would have become, that she would have, within such a short period of time, become a cunning murderess. Um, uh, I, I find that very sort of hard to imagine because, again, she was starting to get it together enough to know that she was going to be paid and she could go to a new house. But during this period, the most important thing and the only thing a working class girl had was her character. Right. In order to get a, a, house, a job in a new house, in a better situation was the word they used. She needed a character reference. And the only character reference that she, she was going to be able to get would have had to come from Nancy. And she didn't know when she left that home that she'd gone to a house that did not have good character. Mm-hmm. And again, um, Kinnear's sexually harassing her and they're chasing around the hallways and things. And, and again, if, I don't know if he would have given her a good character reference. So she's really stuck where she is. And Nancy's holding back her wages, so she doesn't have any money. 
and uh, she's 16 miles out of, uh, she's sort of just on the end of Young Street. So it would have been a long hike even just to get back into town. And she doesn't have a friend that could help mm-hmm. her anywhere she can go. There were a lot of charities that were starting to form in the 1840s to help girls like this. The YWCA and some of these institutions form, and they're starting to uh, look for ways of helping these working class girls to prevent them from ending up in just these sort of situations where they're completely desperate, right? And I think she was definitely desperate. Today, we might think she had some kind of a PTSD, some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder with everything that's happened in her life up to this point. Um, but I think what is what is really interesting about the book is just how completely isolated and friendless and desperate she was. That, I think, is, is uh, again, made her very typical of a lot of young immigrant women who came to Canada at any generation, at any time, even now. You know, refugees who come into country now without anybody with them, anybody helping them to show them the ropes and help them out. It would have been very devastating. Mm-hmm. And then she just becomes sort of a victim of maybe just circumstances, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I find that, that's why I find it so fascinating. I feel like her story can tell us so much about that time period and what her experience would have been like as a woman of a working class, right? That's what I find so interesting. Yeah, I think, I think, again, it's sort of the new immigrant experience, right? If you came to a, a country as a, as, a, as a teenager, you know, how, how do you get started? How do you get, how do you get established without anybody, again, to, to explain things to you, to yeah. let you know how things are working. Mary Whitney did an excellent job initially of sort of socializing her into what the life in, in this household was like. Mm-hmm. But Mary Mary was also just as vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. She's also just as vulnerable to uh, to um, to sort of the realities of patriarchy and in a very heavy, highly class-based society. Mm-hmm. Where the the only the only future for working class girls was essentially marriage, right? To an, another to a working class man and having more children and more children. Mm-hmm. And again, as she didn't, there wasn't any many, any opportunities for a working class girl outside of marriage. Really, she doesn't have much of an education. Apparently, she was able to read and write mm-hmm. in the, the historic the real the real Grace Marks was mm-hmm. able to write. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, the, re- the court records reveal, but and. It, it's the idea still of, of having any kind of job other than what she had this very remote. Okay, I think we're going to have to end it there. Uh, Dr. Mahood, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about Alias Grace, about uh, crime and gender and class and sexuality in 19th century Upper Canada. This gives us fantastic insight to what's going on in the novel. So thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much again to Dr. Linda Mahood. You have really brought some important insight to the novel and to crime and social control in mid-19th century Canada. During the time Grace Marks spent in the justice system, a few jails were operating here in St. Catharines already and likely under the same values and means of social control as just described in our conversation. We'll talk about two of those jails today. The Portaluzzi Jail, 
which a lot of people will know as that little stone building there that's standing there, uh, kind of in and amongst all the construction that's at Port Dolizzi. Uh, it still stands opposite of Lakeside Park, um, was actually built in the 1840s. And the jailhouse, which measures 12 by 20 feet, pretty little guy, little, little, little jail, little jail guy, uh, and uh, contains just two cells, was separated by a stone wall, was likely the overnight bed for many, a drunken sailor or uh, people who maybe had broken the uh, Portaluzzi um, uh, swimsuit law, where you're not allowed to wear your <laughs> swimsuit on the street, um, that kind of thing. Oh, so who knows who would have ended up in the in the little jail, um, but the um, it's likely lots of different types of people because the Welland Canal was um, the Welland Canal was bringing a lot of different types of traffic uh, and business and lots of different types of people to the community. Um, the other jail that we're going to talk about a little bit today is uh, the Lincoln County Jail, which is no longer standing. It stood at one sixteen Niagara Street, uh, and it was built in eighteen sixty six. It was constructed of limestone from Kingston, and the facility was considered an architectural landmark, um, probably because of its Romanesque architecture. It's a really, really pretty building. And even the St. Catharines Constitutional uh, newspaper remarked that a person cannot help regretting that such a handsome structure should be devoted to criminals. <laughs> Oh, well. But (laughs) St. Catharines has lots of other pretty buildings as well. Um, But we should not doubt the functionality of the prison building. It was said to be built in a style that provided ease of supervision and the ability to segregate inmates from each other. So the Lincoln County Jail was a typical jail built for municipalities in the 1850s uh, and was designed for short-term sentences... So inmates basically awaiting trial or sort of the lower end of the criminal, you know, being charged with things. (laughs) I have no legal background whatsoever. But it was further designed to ensure that there was a separation between male and female inmates. Um, Also, adult and children were separated, uh, as well as felons from minor offenders. Thank you for that description of You're welcome. Those are really just like the I wanna say the like architectural and sort of landmark general basic history about those two particular locations. Mm -hmm. There's a ton we're not we're not mentioning and there's a ton of there's tons of history associated with those sites. So we could devote an entire you know we've actually devoted an entire exhibit to law and order in St. Catharines, so um, if people want to know a little bit more about um, Law and Order in St. Catharines and some information from our exhibit, they can visit our blog. Um, there was a few posts uh, done on the blog um, during the life of the exhibit. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Definitely check that out. For then. sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so in hopes of understanding the members of the St. Catharines community who were incarcerated in the mid-19th century, um, particularly in the Lincoln County Jail, that beautiful building we just described, uh, we actually pulled an article published in the St. Catharines Constitutional in January 1867 detailing prisoner statistics from the Lincoln County Jail. We'll include the article in our blog post for this podcast episode as the results are quite fascinating, but we'd like to review some of the stats here. In 1866, the prison incarcerated 185 prisoners, and of that, only 21 were under the age of 16. 
Of those prisoners, a total of 30 were female, with just one being under the age of 16. And this was the age of Grace Marks when she was first imprisoned. Some of the social values and beliefs that members of Victorian society held about gender and class can be seen in some of the 1866 statistics gathered in the St. Catharines Constitutional. Of the 185 incarcerated in the Lincoln County Jail, 169 were first-time offenders, and I find that kind of interesting. Um, Most prisoners identified as Canadian, a total of about 108, but 40 uh, identified as Irish, uh, 16 were from the United States, and 15 were from England. And what I find, there's an interesting stat here, about 50% of all those incarcerated were Roman Catholic. Um, which what we know about Canadian society, upper, Can- upper Canadian society at the time, probably didn't reflect uh, regular society. Um, there were likely more um, Protestants than Catholics in Upper Canada at that particular time. This does make us wonder if there could be a connection between race, religion, and nationality. Again, St. Catharines was a major industrial hub, not just St. Catharines, but Port and Meryton as well in the 1860s, and uh, there was a lot of different types of jobs and a lot of different types of people coming to this area to work. Quite famously, a lot of these uh, jobs were seasonal and also were filled by transient workers going from place to place. Um, That includes the shipping industry, the manufacturing industry, some of the domestic industries as well. So who are these people? Where are they coming from? Where are they going? And what are they doing? Either way, they are spending a lot more time in St. Catharines in the mid-1800s when the city and all the cities that make up St. Catharines are really beginning to develop. So were these, were these the people that were imprisoned in St. Catharines jails? Were they the transient workers? Were they people who had lived here a long time? What kind of class distinction is in and amongst um, the, the, prison, the prisoner makeup at the uh, Lincoln County Jail? So again, unfortunately, the, uh, the article doesn't give us those stats, who were mm-hmm. the people that not only, you know, where did they come from, but what kind of, you know, class background did they come from? And did that have an impact on the stats mm-hmm. and the sort of the makeup of the jail? So is the stereotype of the rowdy, drunken, working class James McDermott's of the time work for the uh, makeup of St. Catherine's prisons? Is that who is in the prison? Is it James McDermott and his like, or is it other types of people? What I find most striking is that the statistics recorded marriage status. And of the male prisoners, 50 were married, while 108 were unmarried. And this compared to 19 married women and only 8 unmarried women. So while marriage seemingly tamed the wild and rowdy behavior of men, it was in fact the opposite for women. More married women were imprisoned than unmarried. And it begs me to ask the question of, was this another form of gendered social control in Victorian society, which is what Dr. Linda Mahood and I talked about so much in our conversation. Uh, Furthermore, it's worth noting that Um, 116 of the 185 prisoners in Lincoln County Jail were recorded as being intemperate, meaning that they had kind of given in to excessive indulgence, most likely alcohol, uh, which was considered one of the largest ills plaguing the lower class in the Victorian era. 
And interestingly also, uh, four of the prisoners were identified as insane. There is no gender associated with these cases, but as Dr. Mahood noted in our earlier conversation, ideas of mental illness and the insanity plea in the criminal justice system were relatively new in the mid-1800s. It makes me wonder if these prisoners would have eventually gone to an asylum, as Grace Marks did for a period of her imprisonment. What were their experiences like? This St. Catherine's Constitutional article can tell us a great deal about who the criminals in St. Catherine's prison institutions were in the mid-1800s. These statistics shed critical insight on how gender, class, and ethnicity wove themselves into the prison system here in St. Catharines, and they help tell a larger story of social values in the Victoria era. However, we do understand that this is a very complex issue, and we know we haven't co- we haven't covered all of the history and complexities involved with this story, but we do hope that we put Alias Grace and the experiences of Grace Marks into a little bit of a St. Catherine's context and to kind of shed light on what going what was going on in St. Catherine's at this time. And it's kind of interesting to think that maybe Margaret Atwood used some of these St. Catherine statistics in her own research for Alias Grace. Who knows? Cool. <laughs> we hope. We don't know. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. This podcast was produced by Adrian Petrie and Sarah Nixon, with special thanks to Dr. Linda Mahood of the University of Guelph for sharing her research. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Mellon Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines. Oh, 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 oh,